Now, under the acute effects of psychedelics, you have massive activation of serotonin receptor 2A across the neocortex and on your social and visual and, and all other cortices. Your brain goes into synchronicity. It goes into delta wave synchronicity, a wakeful dream state. You actually convert, if you go into REM sleep measure, this equates to REM sleep in the sleep, but you're in a wakeful state aware that you're in that space of your mind. What they do at the same time, it causes a, a so-called space called the dorsal mode network to flip into idle state. What is the dorsal mode network of our brain? It brings your brain into conscious awareness or prefrontal cortex, or it takes it into hypofrontality of daydream and creative mind. So this one switches it off your prefrontal cortex into a daydream creative mind. So suddenly your ego mind has no control of where you're going in your mind. It doesn't stop you from getting there. And then under the acute effects of a psychedelic, you have brain talk taking place across your brain through your corpus callosum in a way that it has never talked, has never talked before. And there's a beautiful connectogram. If you go and just Google a psilocybin connectogram on, on, on Google, you'll see a picture of a resting state of a brain and a connectogram of a, a psilocybin activated states. And you must see the exponential increase in connectivity of brain. And then you understand what just took place. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reinvent Health podcast. Here we get to chat to some of the world's most interesting and influential people about everything to do with physical, mental and spiritual well-being. If you want to make healthy changes and live a better life, you are in the right place. Please don't forget to rate, leave a review and share with everyone who wants to live their best life. And now your host, Nikki Robertson. In this episode, I had the wonderful opportunity to chat with Dr. Naeem Mula about integrative psychiatry. He discusses new frontiers in psychiatric treatment and goes into the research around using MDMA and psilocybin as tools for treating depression and PTSD. Who is Naeem Mula? And how did you get into, how did you become, or why did you become a psychiatrist? And what is integrative psychiatry? Okay, this is such a loaded question. <laughs> this can take us hours. Great, we've got but lots Naeem of Ula mm. is a, a naughty boy who, who is very inquisitive <laughs> and, and, and has, does a lot of thinking in his mind that, that kind of drives his behavior. And he's a rebel that always looks for a cause. So psychiatry, how did I find my way to psychiatry? How did I find my way to medicine? If I tell you, I started university doing engineering and I got kicked out of engineering because I really wasn't attending lectures. I think it's the best thing that happened to me. And it was a very roundabout path then to medicine. I went to medical science, a bachelor of medical science degree at Durban Westville, out through to Medunsa because no one wants a failure from another degree to come to them for medicine. So I did medicine through Medunsa. Uh, got through my internship and con service and realized, damn, medicine is a big field. I don't want to be a GP. And I said, let me go and specialize. I first looked at orthopedics and ran away when I realized it's hard work. And then I said, maybe there's no blood and go in psychiatry. Let me go there. And I grew to fall in love with psychiatry over the time that I've been exposed to it. 
So it's been a journey. I've come to psychiatry only in my early 30s to start the, the field in speciality and, and mid-30s to get into being a psychiatrist. First through industry, I did a, a year and 18 months through industry, Eli Lilly and Company. I was a clinical research physician just out of my speciality training. So I got a bit of the other taste of the world of psychiatry from, from, from the industry of pharmaceuticals and how they sell the concepts to us and how some of the lies are sold to us, unfortunately, as well in the background. I got first time there. So I lived that role for one year, 10 months. It robbed me a little bit of my soul. And then I went back to my clinical passion on, on the ground with patients. Started practice at Life Riverfield Lodge in Life Four Ways Hospital for the last nine years. Well, 10, 11 years ago, this uh, nine years of it. And, and cut my feet on mainstream psychiatry through DSM and indoctrination model of how I was taught to look at psychiatry. And, and tried my best, I must be honest, to to do service to my patients. But so that that uh, that promised revolving door of psychiatry play out in front of me every year. Same patient back in front of me, refer to the best of therapists, try the best of medication, and nothing seemed to change along the path. I, I also was on ad boards. I, I went to different drug, was called into different drug companies, give views on their products. And as course, being on a ad board, I tried the new products out only to be disappointed by the latest and the best out there, to always go back to quite cheap meds at the end of the day to manage whatever symptom containment we need. I refer to the best of psychologists to augment the process using the typical CBT, DBT approaches and psychodynamic. A lot of patchwork process, not consistent core unpacking work, a lot of just get on to being back and functional in your life kind of approach to psychiatry, which is unfulfilling. It, in fact, took me through my own parts of, of uh, a burnout and a bit of my own spiral to make sense of where am I in life. So in 2019, I got kicked out of my practice uh, at Life Units because of my views. My views of psychiatry is a failure. We're messing up people. This is wrong. There's got to be a better way. The system is failing the patient. And no one wants to hear that, especially if your egos are entrenched in doing that job in the way you've been taught to do it and you believe you're doing right. So my colleagues turned on me to not want to give me ear. Uh, and, and of course, it's just to, I don't know, blame them. If I was in their space, I would have done the same to a person like me coming at you if you hadn't broached these thinkings in your mind. Uh, the hospital system that I was admitting to. So the numbers that were admitted under me not like that at all because it kind of fell and they needed me to do their work for them and I wasn't there to play the game. So they confronted me to my views. Some of my views came out in the background too. I spoke about alternate parts in psychiatry. They were not comfortable that I was adding views to that, which is considered illegal in this country. And we parted ways a bit acrimoniously. And then became the start to Naimullah, the integrative psychiatrist, trying a different way. I've not studied a course, I've done a diploma to say I'm different from another psychiatrist. I just choose to think differently, apply my logic differently, and try and string up the narrati narratives of all models of psychology and psychiatry together to give a very logical explanation to what a person's going through from inside out, not from outside in. Outside in, it's very descriptive, very uh, diagnostic, very labeling, very, this is what we see, this is what we call it. And then we treat the symptoms by medication on the outside. We lost the relationship component of psychiatry to psychologists. We are very clinical, and I think we were fighting to be recognized by the fraternities of medicine as something also valid. So we came up with hardcore diagnostic concepts and models of medication approach. And really, these are all man-made concepts. 
Wow. Okay, so let's just step back. I love what you said about the doctrination, indoctrination model. Uh, and, you know, having been in the pharmaceutical industry, you can talk firsthand about, yeah, I remember way back in the early 90s, I think it was, when depression was seen as a chemical imbalance, that if you just took a Prozac, all your problems would go away because you have an imbalance. And how far we've come since then, because, you know, they'd say to you, well, if you had a broken wrist, for example, you'd get that fixed, wouldn't you? So here's a pill mm. and you're going to be on this for life. And every couple of years, we're just going to increase the dose or we're going to add some things to this. And if you just step back and look at that, it's like, this isn't solving problems for anybody. And it takes a lot of, it takes balls to go out and say, I'm sorry, guys, but it's not working. And Medicine seems to be very fear-based. I mean, you know, we need medicine, but the, unfortunately, the vast majority of, of practitioners are so scared of stepping out of line and it's not doing anyone any favors. So, you know, the world, you know, I think medicine or everything, every every um, aspect and, and, and facet of life only evolves when someone's prepared to step out the line. So I think it's really admirable that you can eventually come down to saying what we all know is if something's not working, it's got to change. What was really apparent for you when you were working in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, it is the narrative that we, 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 I talk, let's be fair, I was the medical mouth for the organization while I was part of the organization. So here's a reputable psychiatrist friend talking the talk of the logic of the, the chemical imbalance story that was still fed through a large part of the, the 2000s coming into this period. Now only they're changing with a lot more in the background to looking a bit more deeply. But that was still the narrative I had to talk through. It was like a textbook narrative that came from my professors, came through from the, the articles we read. Nothing seemed to change in the logic. And, and that's all I did, resell the brand and talk about how good this brand was to the symptoms from that paradigm of psychiatry soul. But then, of course, you see a bit of the manipulation of how data is presented in the background, how what they call data mining takes place to extract data in, to prove particular points of, 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 uh, of, of, of strength of the product rather than show the holistic picture of the product. So mm -hmm. no, manipulation of uh, outlook. And then also in, entrenching an outlook that without medication, these disorders succumb to relapse and, 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 and these are chronic disorders, it is entrenched in the way data has been presented. And, and of course, then I believe that data. Oh, yes, if you present it after the second time of a depressive episode, you entrench to fall into depression so much easier going forward now. And we talk that model, let's not come off meds. So it dictated yes. to how we prescribed our meds. Everything was controlled by the model of information fed. As, as I fed the model as through the drug company, it was the same information I've been indoctrinated through my training from behind. And, and, and why wouldn't it be? Because the system had to be based on some sort of education. I don't think anyone went out of the way to cause a problem here. No. They just tried to structure a rational process of making sense of the problem and approaching it logically, but some egos got entrenched and some distortions of process came out and somehow too much more pathology came out of normality rather than let's explain why this disturbance of behavior is coming out from deeper processes. Mm. So very superficial, patchwork yeah. behavior. Yeah. Human beings are far more complex than a model. You know, we use models to make sense of the world, but then there's no one's going to, not everybody's going to fit into the model all the time. And I think this is the biggest shortfalling of, of most therapies is we, we try and categorize people and then 
push a treatment onto some way of organizing in our minds how that person is. And this is where this is where we're going to fall over. Yes, let, let me just take you back before we even try and contemplate a person's thinking and what's going on. Let's just create an understanding of the physiology of what's going on and then we go into the psychology. Okay. The, the first thing to understand, and I go right back to 1992 when I did Physiology 101, and I think about one of the first lectures and the body is a homeostatic organism. It always strives to fight for an internal balance. Now, a state of depression or any body physiological distortion to give you a medical physical disorder or whatever illness you have is already an imbalance derived by not living in balance. Now, the logic is restore the balance of input or the state of mind and the whole body will fall back in balance without you having to prod it unnecessarily. But anything to fall back in balance needs a period of restoration of three to six weeks. And where in modern society do we give three to six weeks off for people to restore their physiological balance and get back into their bodies and sense of self? So no, this is a quick fix process. So logically in the background, most people are coming from early trauma. And when I say trauma, I don't mean trauma in the way your mind jumps to it. I'm going to draw, draw, draw a model of what goes on in most people in psychology and psychiatry. It comes from something that takes place in the last try already, within the last try of pregnancy, to the first three to six months of life. In most cases, the damage was already done. In what we see later in psychiatry and psychology comes from that predisposed model as early as that. And that's some form of an attachment disorder in, or imperfect attachment. And this, in most cases, is not meant to be traumatic or was deliberate, but it is a everyday events that took place that caused it. Sometimes it's it's the infection and illness of a mom with the pregnancy inside that predisposes the child to heightened state of survival already intrauterine. Sometimes it's the emotional arguments between mom and dad and heightened and lower emotional state of this woman, stress hormones coming across in the pregnancy as well. Or there may be a true full-on abuse model on the outside and physical trauma to the, the pregnant woman. There could be preterm labor and delivery and the child that goes into ICU and detachment playing out from that, a child that never trusts his mother again because of that. Or a mother that ends up in ICU and the child doesn't trust the mother. Or illnesses of, of, of of, of the situation postpartum where the mother goes in postnatal depression, detaches emotionally from the child. Already the child comes to a new environment from the womb, mistrusting the environment because it expects some sense of nurturing, security for it to survive. If it can't have consistency of trust in the nurturing model that comes in front of it, distortions start playing out. That child starts off with colic, ENT, early behaviors. Already this is internalized anxiety in the child, unsteadily. That child that needs to always be picked up and nurtured that way, the carry baby, already is an unsettled child. That child that sits in the corner and entertains itself for hours, the independent so-called baby, that is an insecure, introverted baby, or the one that's tugging between the mom's legs, or the one that's all over the show trying to win the attention of everyone to feel secure in the environment, shows distortion has already played out. And we're calling those behaviors already behaviors of autism or, you know, or ADHD, or, or, or then it gets into children that are truly abused, it becomes conduct disorder and oppositional defiance, but because of traumatic nurturing models of impatience, erraticness, talk over, talk at, no reflect model of inducing sense of self, but controlling almost enmeshing models of not knowing sense of self from sense of other. And this is the dynamics that carry forward into adulthood. Often we see this model playing out worse that teenage onset where we call rebelliousness of teenage normality. It is not normal. It's a young adult coming of age to tell you it didn't like what you did while he brought it up. So it's society has fallen short repeatedly if you just look at what society is doing. And this is a structure of society in the bigger picture causing all of this going on in the background. Let's be fair. 
this model then creates inadequacy of the, the autonomous new life coming to the world, inadequate, am I good enough for this mother's attention, this parent's attention, it's a subconscious process of self-doubt that's playing out. Once thinking sets in from age three to six with pictures and word memory coming in, it's projected into environments of fear of, I worry about my mother, I worry about school, I worry about um, bullying. And these already intimidated individuals are introverted. They are now predisposed as well to bullying, to molestation, to being anything else because they are easy to be preyed on. They're introverts. They don't talk up. They don't talk, speak out. They, in, they go in. So they're easily picked on as an emotionally insecure. There's the re-trauma. There's this snowballing effect that we see later in adolescence trauma. They're the ones more likely now with overthinking in the background of the minds to reach to a substance, to be distracted to those pathways in life, or mis misdirect their energies to throw themselves at men if they're women, to find validation models then, or men into toxic masculinity models to find belonging amongst other youth that don't feel they belong with their parental and family models, and this distortion plays out there, and it plays out beyond this. And of course, each way along the way, as they're coming up, the fingers are pointed at them as the problem is at them. And they are just but the products of their systems, but they go for the hardcore treatment. They get called the labels, they get given the meds, and the system is never adjusted. So the problem perpetuates, continues. There's anger that plays backwards in adulthood. We never resolve the underlying emotional issues that bear to attachments and entanglement from childhood. Ultimately, this projects into marital relationships, romantic relationships, and invariably to the model of our bringing to the new onset children in their families, enmeshing, cycle continuing, blindly repeating the models of parenting as muscle memory from behind, value sure. systems from behind are projected forward, also completing, complicating the newborn's individual's mind, which is also complicated. Uh, confused by the variables of society's schooling models, the TV models, the, your religious model, your extended family model, your friendship model. We just got too many models in front of us and we are confused. People don't know who we need to be. We don't know which mask is the right mask to be. And it wasn't a mask. We were to be authentic sense of selves. And unfortunately, too many people are living masks, but not selves. That's, it sounds like such a mess. And how on earth do we get out of this? Because like you said, it's, 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 we're repeating patterns that we were taught that we came through with. So at what point, I mean, and it, see, it seems like society's feeding it. So we're going to mess you up, but we're going to give you a tablet. Um, so you can stay messed up and then we can keep selling something to you so you can stay in the cycle. And by the time you have children, they will probably need something as well uh, because they'll be autistic or have ADHD because um, everything's broken. So where do we stop the bus and go, you know, this isn't working. We've got to, we've got to look at it in a different, in a, with a different set of um, filters. And this is where I've taken the step forward and there are others in this field of integrative health. It's not just psychiatry, it's integrative health. It's, it's seeing the individual as, as, a, as a complete unit of, of physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, social, and environmental aspects of components. And if you don't holistically structure these components and give them an idea of how you take structure of it, because a lot of this was not taught to them, and that's where the model falls short from behind. Our model of upbringing is an IQ model of upbringing. School is the focus of our attention for 12 years, then comes academia of university, and it's a make-a-living model of living up to that point, fixation on making a living, preparing you to make a living. Along the model, for those who are 
fortunate enough for a balanced life approach, get hobbies, get interests, get sport, get those kind of stimulation, holidays and those things. But if you didn't, if you came from hard backgrounds and poverty and impoverishment, you often only have to focus on make a living model of living. And when you come forward, you get to make a living often. Maybe very people, many people are successful make a living model for short and enjoying their life and have those other aspects of their life fulfilled. So that's where the social, the, the, the mental stimulation beyond living, making your money to make you ability to live your life, the, the fulfillment of, of relationship component, your social component, how to create healthy boundaries and see what you really are looking for rather than project from a mind of neediness into a relationship and sabotage it, which is where a lot of people walk through. Why separations play out so quickly out there? People are walking into relationships with masters. They never show a true self. Of course, it's sabotage is bound to fail within three to seven years because then all the issues of behind come projected forward. So the logic is this integrative approach. Integrative approach is holistic. It, it looks at the physical component to balance you in your physiology again, to talk to the importance of sleep, talk to getting your wind down with the circadian rhythm, to the wind down with low light after sunset, to have wind down behaviors. But before you even start your wind down behaviors, unpack your day at dinner. Unpack your day structure, what it is you're walking into the next day. And, and, and it'll come to a point that you plan forward, even socially, three to six months in advance. That's what structuring to look forward to your life is about. Not looking forward to a work life, which we hold ourselves responsibly obliged to get up for. Otherwise, the weekends, most people kind of get up late to catch up with sleep and don't wake up for themselves. They disrespect whose life it is. They respect work more than themselves. They respect getting up for their partner or their children as they're responsibly more than themselves. But to get up for themselves, to do something for themselves before they started the day, it's too much effort to start. So self-respect is the starting component here as well. Respect to how you feed the right nutrient to your body, where we talked a, a dietary modification, not diet per se, but healthy eating. I never yes. talk hard words no, scariness. Mm -hmm. but yes, it's a lifestyle change to how you feed yes. your body to what it needs. But to even get to a point to know what your body needs, you have to go through a phase of detox. Yes. So to get to even starting any of this, you wash out everything for three to six months to, just to detox, to learn something when you reintroduce it what it means to your body and what it feels in your body and what it does for your body. And when you take this concept on on the eating side, that's where the physical nurturing takes place, you'll learn that when you go to eat, your eyes go to the food, you feel for that your body needs, not that your tongue says, I like in taste. Suddenly your body talks in a better way once you detox to come that way. To detox is to take anything that manipulates your your, your enjoyment and, and emotional system in the background, which is dopamine. Detox yes. your tea, your coffee, your sugary drinks, your energy drinks, anything that's spikes it and drops it, smoking, of course, any psychoactive substance in the background as well to detox. All of this ultimately taking you to that point of getting to know your body in the background. With this comes learning to settle in your body and come out of your mind. A lot of grounding behaviors, so meditation, starting your day with meditation, mindful-based, nothing spiritual, anything because I don't talk into a person's spiritual place and things, but we talk that later when they're ready to open that door to me. But in the moment, it's to start to learn to still one's mind in front of you because the biggest background issue in, in a mental health disorder is this concept called rumination, emotional overthinking, which yes. can become obsessive type rumination, paranoid type rumination, anxious type rumination. Basically means you running in the background, subconscious part of your mind, just letting it run. Rather than use the mind for what it was meant for, your emotional playground, at least your fantasy playground, your creativity, 
We are playing future variables and past variables to no avail because we are living in the moment. We waste the potential of our mind in the future and our past, learning it as a, a distorted learned behavior from childhood, from rumination, where we didn't have an EQ engaging model of good parents. We got stuck in our mind to self-occupy and self-process. And invariably, then we hold that as our resource and we fall back into it as a muscle memory behavior. Not that it's pathology, it just needs to be unlearned. And people make everything a pathology too quickly. Yes, you may say bad things to yourself in a muscle memory way, but it doesn't mean it's everything is bad. It just means you've got a stuck record of bad words in, in a loop in your mind. I, I advise people to watch sitcoms, stand-up comedy documentaries on nature. No series on how people, how people die and killing and this. Why feed all that to a subconscious mind, which is more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer, I think, at the moment. We really don't know how to, to process the speed and abilities of our subconscious processor, which is, sits in our limbic cortex, which is where rumination plays out. It is a true multitasking part of our brain. It can juggle, I don't know, multiples of thousands of thoughts from variables, from experience, from birth to where you are, wherever you are in your life, to anything that's not processed to make sense to your existence, to your ego, to your being, it will sit residually in the back of your mind from any experience in your past. Everything that was a good memory and made you feel good is already logged into a good memory loss. So what our mind does as a normal program, logical processor does, it takes you back to the last unfinished business in it. Noise in the back of your mind is all things you couldn't put to rest. And our brain works on this Bayesian predictable model of logic. If it didn't make sense, it'll hold on till it makes sense. So the more noise in the back of your mind, the more you can't sleep at night, the rumination, the more fractured sleep you have, the more distracted or, or they call you ADHD or anxious, you get distracted in your mind, zone out and all of those things we call. It's the noise in the back of your mind that pulls you there. And so how do we get there now after we do this, looking after your physiology on the one side, I take people on a depth process of the narrative of their life. But before we can talk about their life, we have to set the stage for their life because they just popped into the world at their birth. But the stage was set about a generation or two behind still coming through. So they go and research great-grandparents yes. and grandparents and, and the lives of their parents because they know them as dad and mom and granddad and grandpa. They didn't know who these people were, where they grew up, what was their variables, what were their challenges, why did they behave like this, where did this come from, where did they say this? Suddenly, before I even start talking why their life experienced what they did, after we talk through the variables of the narrative of the lives behind them, and I promise you it's gossip like in it, information at all, oh, who screwed who over, who stole from who, and what age did they chase this, what did they talk about, other colored people, so racism and every concept, because that's where value systems got imprinted into the minds of those that came before you, that talked it in front of you, and not to point people out and find flow in this, to show you how the dominoes fell. And all you got caught up was in a wave that was coming generationally from behind you, just born into the wave and it took you for a ride. And if you didn't catch your yeah. ability to catch a scope in it, you'd gone through to the demise of you without realizing who you were, just believing in the wave that took you to that point. Just an unconscious life. And that's, that's such a travesty because I just want to just move back to one thing that you said, which really, really stood out for me was in when you're talking about rumination, how we repeat this, this conversation in our heads until we close the loop. And someone once said to me, you know, when you've got a song in your head and you can't stop cycling through the song, they said, finish the song till the end and your brain will leave it alone because it doesn't like unclosed loops. And it makes all kinds of sense. If something in your life isn't making sense, you can't come to terms or understand, you can't 
tighten the loop and nicely tie a knot in it, you're going to ruminate. And that that you've just like clarified something so obvious, but so so del- so so beautifully because it makes perfect sense. We all ruminate. It doesn't have to have the ending that you want. It's just got to have a logical conclusion that your brain can make sense of. And I think a lot of people listening can go, ah, this is what's going on. Because, and nowadays, I think, you know, with, with what's going on in the last 12, 15 months, as you know, as we all know, is the levels of loneliness have become more apparent and the levels of what they call mental illness. I think it was always there, but it's just more apparent now. Um, Levels of depression and people feeling suicidal. This has just pushed it more into the fore, what this this, this having to be in isolation in this different kind of world that we're living in. What are your thoughts? Is it, is it, is there more or is it just more obvious or are people talking about it more? All right. So, yeah, good question. And, and multi-pronged answer again. I'm so sorry to do this to you every time. But yes, so so you're right. There's this, 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 this pandemic, global pandemic, yes, or epidemic, you want to say, of mental health issues. You're right. In in the last, I mean, we in, in, in modern psychiatry area, I mean, I, I'm so fortunate. I'm a modern psychiatrist. They say we don't do lobotomies and we don't do those harsh things of past psychiatry. But if you just look at the stats, it doesn't explain why we're not going somewhere positive. I mean, the, the mental health conditions are in the top 10 conditions of morbidity and mortality worldwide by World Health Organization ratings. So, and if you just follow the trends, which countries? It's, it's the countries like the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, or colonial-based European following countries, a structure and system of society that is unnatural. Unfortunately, five days you live for you, and two days you work, uh, at least five days you work for you, two days you live for you. A lot of this playing out in the background. So yes, this has been coming in the background. There's, this is the way with this. That's why there's so many discussions about mental health and sport groups and more openness about the stigma is falling. That was there before COVID. Then came COVID. What did COVID do? Well, there's multiple things that COVID did. One, it forced those that have their solitary to be in their minds, right? And of course, modern life has kept us away from our minds as much as possible. Go to gymming, go to your series, go to your responsibilities, go to gaming. Don't go to contemplate you very deeply. I mean, that's more esoteric, but now who's esoteric here? So that's what happened. A lot of people got stuck in their minds. And of course, when you've been putting a lid on your past and trying to just keep on doing what you need to do in front of you, keep on surviving, getting on with it, don't depend on how people talk their talks then your past catches up with you sometimes quite quickly. When those that you have unfinished business with from your past suddenly demise because of the COVID that hits them, then you go into tailspins of depression. Of course, now you can't express yourself. You haven't resolved your needs for validation, acknowledgement to your parental nurturing models. That's usually what's still unfinished business by the time of demise. So both ways didn't finish the talk of acceptance. But that is another trigger, the loss of a close one. Two was the isolation. Three was the break of physiological pattern and behavior. So you didn't get up to move your body all that much, caught up, closed up in your space. So if you get up and stay awake, you can tire your mind because it was awake. Your body didn't get sleep, uh, didn't get to move. It didn't tire out. So when you go to sleep, it restless in sleep. You get up, your mind didn't get sleep as well. So your physiological patterns were broken. Then the the, the 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 hysteria on media, the deaths, the numbers, the every day, the number of deaths in the world, which created more anxiety out of those already predisposed to worry. Warriors succumb further to worse uh, periods of illness out of COVID. Sure. They are the worst cases. So there's a knock-on of many, multiple things that played into the space. Mm. 
and not just one thing, but I think it brings to the fore also this thing of taking life for granted. There were so many plans before COVID hit, all holidays, everything. Everyone was equalized in one stroke. But the reality is we all were equal at one stage and suddenly mortality was in everyone's faces. The thing that we don't stop to think yeah. about our own mortality mm-hmm. and then anxiety provokes on this point as well. I treat a lot of people that created anxiety of not being close to their loved ones that had to go back to Europe or to, to uh, Asia because that's where they were from. And so a lot of seeing that their value was wrong in what they stepped into their choice of life, true their value to family bonds and relations were much more important. And that was triggering the fear for the health of the others that was playing out. This is it. I mean, if we're not living our truth and we're not realizing what's really important to us, what's the point? The thing that really interests me and what what's what's really coming to the fore here is way back in the beginning you were saying that we you you know in the psychiatry realm the the therapist role was handed over to the psychologist and the psychiatrist was seen as the doctor who dispensed the medicine and everything you've been speaking about here is understanding the human and understand from what you've said nobody here needs a drug to fix this we need an understanding of 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 how we're operating first and foremost. Yes, I mean, if, you, if you're if full of anxiety, I'm sure Azano would help short-term, but it's not a long-term solution. And this is what we've all missed. Um, you know, I, I see it myself in my own practice is that people are very careless about what they eat because there's a pull for that. Um, there'll always be a glucophage that'll, that'll keep their diabetes in check. But that's not true because with all these with these, these chemicals come side effects. And I'd like to just sort of dovetail into another topic. The, the topic that I really want to dig into with you is, is the dawn of coactive um, treatment in the form of um, MDMA, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, which was mainstream treatment as far as I can understand way back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Can you elaborate on, on what actually yeah. happened with um, the treating people, but it's a different attitude that you treat the patient with. It's almost like you have to go on a journey with them, not give them a prescription, then they've got to go on this journey by themselves. And that's what's standing out for me here. And that takes work. That takes huge effort on the doctor's part to actually understand that we can't apply all of these chemicals to every patient who walks through the door, and I'm going to have to do this journey with them. So let's talk about, in your opinion, what was what's the history of these substances and where do you see it going in the future? Okay, so yes, of course, very exciting space to talk about, the so-called psychedelic renaissance, of course, and they call this cutting-edge psychiatry. Um, I read this article, what, nine years ago when I read that, they call it psychiatry. But let's be fair, you're right, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, Psychedelics were already being played with since uh, the stumbling upon LSD by Albert Hoffman and his bicycle ride that was beautifully remembered by the Bicycle Day recently as well. Uh, Yes, then this field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy opened up. Some great pioneering work done in this period, over a thousand papers written, uh, I think over 10,000 patients in treatment processes in that period, a lot of which was buried after 
the world uh, sat down and decided with the U.S. pushing this war on drugs that psychedelics should be included in this all illicit drug grouping because drugs were messing up society and the values and the morals of people out there, not war and everything else messing up the world. But anyway, so that came and what was the major drive for LSD and, and the substances of the psychedelics to be introduced was this counterculture, anti-government, anti-war movement of the hippies of the 60s and the 70s, which was not what any state requires of its people that is not going to help it get its propaganda across. So essentially what we realized these products could do already from the 60s and 70s, these were so-called mind-liberating substances. What do you mean by a mind-liberating substance? Now, let's put some logic to these statements. What does your mind need to be liberated from in the first place? So everything that is fed to it from birth till it takes on an adult form, the formative training period of life, from birth till 12, 13 years old, the onset of adolescence, is when your brain is in beta, theta wave, primarily receptive wave, taking so much in, just punching in your environment, people's behaviors, words, ways people say, mannerisms, attitudes. So nurture becomes the primary molder of us rather than nature, that genetic component we all talk about. And that's what becomes indoctrinated into your mind, of course, your religion, your, your political affiliations, your outlook to women, your spiritual being, your masculinity, your woman's side to anything all indoctrinated by those who spoke to you in your ear, your mom's values, your experiences, your outward society influence, that's what you get liberated from. And unfortunately, so are the values of the state that you may not stand equating to can be liberated, which is why states didn't like the product. Okay. And that's why they pull the product off. But essentially, now let's leave what happened back in the 60s and 70s. This is what the liberation was about back then. Let's talk to the logic of physiology and, and what goes on in the brain yes. that it actually does cause the so-called liberation of the brain, mm -hmm. right, of the mind. So a psychedelic is a primarily serotonin receptor 2A agonist. It attaches and stimulates the release of serotonin through these receptor functions or the function of serotonin in the downstream layout. This receptor is predominantly found in the second layer of our brain matter, which is the outer metal of the, of the brain. The brain matter is the nerve cell bodies. And the, the second layer is one of the deeper layers to the sense of self your, your, your autobiography sense that's created within the first 10, 12 years, your ego is structured in there, or your ego deficiency is already laid in there, that ego defense is coming to play from that point forward. You understand that's all psychology words getting thrown into the psychobabble approach here. So essentially, these priors of sense of self are formed in the second layer and stored there, and then uh, like a top-down controller to every experience of life, it vets that experience against the prior sense of self. You reject praise if you felt you were unworthy. You re reject uh, love when you feel that you know, you're unlovable and that's why your parents rejected you. So anyway, in a relationship with a partner, you'll never accept the love is true. So it comes from your priors that now prevent you having a realistic, authentic relationship because your fears from your priors now skew. Your filters coming away and block the trueness of behavior in front of you. So your priors become your saboteur. It becomes the ego defense controlled by the prefrontal cortex and blocks access to certain emotional memories that actually get physiologically blocked off in the back end of an emotional plane. So you actually have a dichotomy of thinking playing out. You've got an intellectual mind with all variable analysis, emotional memories that couldn't make sense but blocked off and excluded from other synapses around it because it could not be made sense of. 
it was blocked off for survival. You put a lid on it, you put it in the eye, they put it, and, and eventually it starts bursting as it seems sure. as more and more things get backed up in there. So what's happening now, you've got the backlog of this, it's all related to your prize, and then the base interior of brain function rejects every model of otherwise that doesn't fit with your prize, and you live a self-fulfilling prophecy, always coming back to the same point because your prize told you this is recreating what you will go looking for and why you need it. And that's what derives our subconscious self-fulfilling prophecy behavior. And that's what they Now, under the acute effects of psychedelics, you have massive activation of serotonin receptor 2A across the neocortex and on your social and visual and, and all other cortices. Your brain goes into synchronicity. It goes into delta wave synchronicity, a wakeful dream state. You actually convert, if you go into REM sleep measure, this equates to REM sleep in the sleep but you're in a wakeful state aware that you're in that space of your mind. What does it do at the same time? It causes a, a so-called space called the dorsal mode network to flip into idle state. What is the dorsal mode network of our brain? It brings your brain into conscious awareness or prefrontal cortex, or it takes it into hypofrontality of daydream and creative mind. So this one switches it off your prefrontal cortex into a daydream creative mind. So you're coming off your prefrontal by that dorsal mode network being switched off by this. So suddenly your ego mind has no control of where you're going in your mind. It doesn't stop you from getting there. And then under the acute effects of a psychedelic, you have brain talk taking place across your brain through your corpus callosum in a way that it does never talk has never talked before. And there's a beautiful connectogram if you go and just Google a psilocybin connectogram on, on, on Google, you'll see a picture of a resting state of a brain and a connectogram of a, a psilocybin activated states. And you must see the exponential increase in connectivity of brain. And then you understand what just took place. There's real-time brain growth, synaptogenesis and neurogenesis. Means synaptogenesis, a nerve is talking to another term. The new talks, nerve-to-nerve talk has been created. Real-time, within 24 hours, the nerve has grown to talk to another nerve. Real-time neurogenesis, the nerve has grown longer, real-time over 24 hours after acute influence of a psychedelic. So your brain heals and grows to talk to each other parts of your brain. Wow. You are more connected, more logical. The logic of one part of your brain that you use for work of this and now applies to the emotional logics of issues in your mind. Suddenly it makes sense. You release massive loads in, a, in acute psychedelic treatment, four to six hours deep set treatment by priming a brain with the narrative of their life story, first teaching a model of self-respect in priming to that point. And when they're ready, they, the therapist takes them in with, on doses when you talk psychedelics of psilocybin, five to 10 gram, hero dose effects, they call this, because the social dose is between one and a half to three grams on a social level. Why they give massive doses is to fight for those who are anxious-based people, where your strength of your ego fights to stay in control. You don't fall into succumb state of experience. You have to fight the ego strength. The higher the dose, the harder it is to not succumb. Uh So that's what they do. And then the trip is more self-healing. Once the person gets to that point, the patient is in their mind. The work happens in their mind. The therapist is more psychological and a a physiological guide on the outside and support on the outside. And the process can go on four to eight hours, depending on on the the agent used for the session. But there's preparatory work that goes on before bringing a patient to that point. Because anyone can have a trip, which means going your mind in a deep state. That's what a trip is. But if you don't prepare to meet some information that you haven't had an answer for before, 
it could haunt you and that's what a bad trip can be for you. And if you're an anxious person, your worst fears of losing control in the space can trigger you see demons and losing. So a bad trip is but the figments of your own mind and, and, and if an unprepared mind with emotional baggage goes into a trip, there's risk for unhinging blocks to those memories. So then you get what we call a residual refractory re-experiencing kind of dissociative re-experiencing post-psychedelic experience for those people who are not primed and gone in proper and knowing proper integration work on the other side of the trip. More important than the trip and the experience of a trip is grounding on the other side of the trip is where integration work is talked about. And now if you, you just, this is all the overview of what goes on in the brain and the physiology and, and, and the, the, the ECG, the EEG, sorry, I mean, and brainwave changes. But essentially, this, this is, is, is almost a space that all previous synaptic connections that held your prior skin are put into a loosened plastic, heated plastic state, and they can adjust to join to something else within that four to six hour state. And the new growth that takes place at that point to whatever it connects to, it becomes the enduring outlook on the other side of the experience. It is, it is fixed in a new rewired state. Mm -hmm. You actually rewire your brain real time in this yes. form of therapy. It's not a repeated therapy that you take it every day like you do with a mainstream medication. It's a come to therapy after prep work, maybe three to six months again, down the line to build from a point to the next point. Journey work, there's the journey concept of it. Never will you go back and start afresh. You start from a new base each time you start from, and that's the logic of what experiences come from abroad with, with all the trials that are going on in Imperial College of Medicine, John Hopkins University. There's a lot of structured work. There's head-to-head -head trials playing out in mainstream antidepressants and psilocybin, which one such trial came to first outcome results about four weeks ago, quite interesting. Of course, in favor of psilocybin already, though they didn't go to show superiority, they just wanted to show equivalence. So there's a lot of work going on. Of course, that's the natural product, psilocybin. There's the synthetic version, the LSD, that's been used in the same space. There's also now this the, the MDMA, which we know as the party drug ecstasy. It's found its way back into the labs, into treatment. It started as treatment and found its way into the party scene. And that's why it got pulled out of treatment, but it's finding its way back. And that's playing a role for PTSD and controlled interviews with the ego-safe states of oxytocin cover because there's such oxytocin released through MDMA that you're in an ego-safe state, you feel safe to talk about your deepest trauma and can process it much better. So much more facilitated interviews being used. Also for couples therapy, both people under LSD, they don't fight. Or MDMA, they will never fight each other. No. They love and cry and talk to their fight in the middle. The therapist actually sits back and just has to watch and smile. Really, this, that's, that's the feedback coming out of studies from the state to these processes. So suddenly people are having fun in therapy and, and, and now is the time of real change of psychiatry. This is the true psychiatry. There isn't hardcore psychiatry out there. I think there's just been a lot more what we call soft psychiatry being diagnosed too hard out in the world. Mm. There's true hardcore psychiatry that requires much more pathology work focus. But the bread and butter people who are called depression, anxiety, eating disorders and this and that need not go so hard into this process of hardcore yes. psychiatry. And the early narrative they were right to be upset in their body and their means of trying to take back control and all as much distorted was their means of trying to take back their power of self, now teach healthier coping and healthier means to take back their power, give them rights to their emotions and expressions to their past to what was wrong. And suddenly they take back their power rather than call them a diagnosis. Then they walk their label and you tell them this is a remitting and relapsing pathway. They come back to see you again mm. because you told them they will relapse one day. They will relapse one day. Tell them what you need to tell them. They'll believe what you told them. You gave them power over you because you're the doctor. 
And that's the theory part here. And I don't mean my colleagues and I made bad when we gave advice. We gave advice from textbooks that we didn't really delve into making more and more sense out of it. We assume that everyone says this. We have to say this is what all the good psychiatrists would do. So we don't judge those that are trying. We try and understand where they come from. Sure. That's all. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like um, psychiatry of the future is, is almost shamanism. It's, it's being a guide and helping people to heal themselves. I live the model. I have to talk honestly because otherwise I, I can't tell anyone with any conviction who I come from. I burnt out in 2019. I was depressed. I was anxious. I had to self-medicate for a while, four months, because I couldn't bear the feeling of what anxiety did from inside out into my body. I had to take away habits of coffee drinking and tea and things like that. I had to detox my system. I had to find brightness to my mind. I had to meditate. I had to ground. So everything I talk about is a lived experience that took me away from every lying on the med again and not needing it. Even though stress has come up in my life, I walk it in, in my stride now. Why? I found contentment of who I am in my body. I believe in me. I trust me because I am in my skin for so long. How can I not trust me? I brought me to this point despite the challenges of the life. And when you get that concept of appreciation of oneself, self-respect, then easily does this model just fall into place. If you try and approach this model from outside, then you're going to do the eating, the movement, the this, the that, and not see yourself and talk yourself and affirm yourself and laugh with yourself, smile with yourself, change the voice to you as your best as bestie ever, 10 times better than that, or 100,000 times better than that. That's who you should be to yourself. When you get that voice right, if people hold on to the self-talk that they play in them, critical, judgmental, insignificant, dismissive, and that was internalized from, from choices and life events and, and judgings that come through. That voice becomes the voice of self-talk inside us. And we don't know that it was our right to change that, to be a friend, talk to, not talk at you. Because they talked at us, that's the model of talk that parents primarily use. They don't realize it is a model of disrespect. We got angry when we were teenagers. We rebelled about that. In fact, they talked at us. They talk, but we talked at us in our mind. We internalized the disrespect model because it was the only model of self-talk in front of us and that became our mind talk and our parents' voices became the way we speak to ourselves in our mind. And in very we still beat ourselves up in talk patterns before we even came to the world with any issue. We did us. Yes. And if we don't become our best friend, smile to see us in the morning, wink at ourselves, make joke of an oopsie that we did, say that was embarrassing to ourselves and now, now we won't get there again and come up with our solution to the problem. And become our best friend of one who would nurture, mentor, coach, reassure, sit there, have fun with yourself. When you can do that in your body and not need someone around you and truly enjoy your presence, then you've mastered that process of self, self-love. That and is, I think that. that's the goal. That's the goal for all of us. That's the target is to is to enjoy being with you, with yourself. And I don't know very many people who can do that. But I ask people, why not? Mm. Why would you hold against yourself something if you had a person sitting in the room telling you their life, which was your life, and they were just another person, you would not judge them in their life. We are hypocrites. We hold others to a gentler standard. We hold ourselves internally to an unreasonable standard. But of course, then we will fail. We always have reason to judge ourselves. Then we to put ourselves above human status and we're supposed to just be something else. But yet we are all human, are we not? Yes. We will make mistakes. We will, uh, we will fall. We will never be perfect at anything. We'll know more about something, but not enough about anything. And then if you acknowledge this logic and comfortable with that point, then we are human. And if you can accept yourself as human and you make an error, as long as you acknowledge your error to grow, not be complacent about it, then you're human. And if we do this 
we will only but get better in our lives. But somehow this model of society has created an expectation we should know things by some place, by some time. And so we all judge ourselves. I should have known this. I should have been there. How could I have done this? But how many times have each one of us lived our life but the first time? So invariably, there's no script that we carried with us to tell us do this, choose that. We are going to put our foot in it, our tongue in it, or put in our mouth or something of it. As long as we can walk still in the journey of our life, then sure. it wasn't a biggie, wasn't it? We didn't die. Yeah. And if we didn't die, yeah. then we were supposed to just grow from it. And when we gave too much emphasis to what goes on in our overactive mind, which unfortunately people didn't treat us to, teach us, to guide us to how to train and use that mind, then of course our mind becomes our biggest saboteur in this existence. Our worst enemy, our prison, that's it. Mental illness, when you realize finally after you talk to logic with us, thereafter becomes a choice. It's sad to say it this way, because mm. people, when they hear it from me, then you say, you're callous, Dr. Muller. There's this thing called diagnosis of depression. No, I'm not callous. I'm saying we have to call it something by the descriptors of symptoms. But how we got that energy and experience to create in our body, we played a thought process that we were in control of. If we can take back a control over it, then it's our choice to walk away from it. If we let that drug record play and give it credence as if it's true in our mind, yet we've heard it how many years behind us and came up on it when we stressed, why do you believe something that you heard many years yet you're still alive? The world didn't end, you didn't die, it wasn't the end of you, but you still, every time it says it, you got stressed by hearing it. Somehow your own thoughts scared you. You gave credence to a stuck records in one's mind. Mm. A thing that just lights up under the intensified release of adrenaline and dopamine, amplifying that pathway which was only activated under stress thoughts before, lights up to say the same words to you, same logic to you, yet there's no fit to reality. It comes from a child, child's mind from a past, a stuck record repeated so many times under stress that it just lights up without reason. And yes. unless you were challenging your thoughts enough and don't run with it because you were aware of your latest thought. And most people don't know that they are deep layers to thinking. You know, there's about six layers, so-called layers to thinking. Did you know this? Psychologists claim this. I don't know. I haven't delved into it myself too deep. But they say most people play in the top two layers, which is non-reflective thinking or awkward thinking. That's from some of your prefrontal cortex, your conscious cortex. But thinking goes into subconscious process as well goes four or five or layers deeper than that. And you get to the so-called guru level of thinking. You can detach your emotional cortex, your ego cortex, to not let that get in the way of clear advice and logic, which we hope all our judges and magistrates do. Don't let the egos get in the way of perspective. But that's what you need training to do. But if you're not aware that this even existed and 90% of the population don't play in the space, uh, they don't go inward, they go outward in behavior, they're not esoteric, inwardly driven. And unfortunately, then they miss this logic. And they get caught up by their own emotions from the subconscious mind, hitting the conscious awareness as the emotional fields of their body, the awkwardness of the hurt, pain, the irritation, the restlessness of the anger or anxiety or boredom that they all misinterpret as the same thing sometimes. So people don't know how to lead the body talk. The body talks through emotion. What is an emotion? A conscious awareness of a state of mind that comes through your body to your conscious awareness, but it came through the subconscious to be driven to the consciousness. So your subconscious communicates with your consciousness. And that's what is your emotional feel or your gut feel, your head in the back of your head. It's all your subconscious talking to you. Why the subconscious talks to your conscious? It, it, it evaluates multiple variables at once. It evaluates from peripheral vision, peripheral sound, uh, peripheral uh, information of the past relating to what's going on in front of you, memories from multiple areas. It's taking all of this and juggling, juggling, and gives you a, an indication of potentially what's going on in front of you and how to read the situation space. But most of us don't know how to appreciate a body talk. 
because that was part of EQ growth in the earlier phase of our life with a nurture model from our parents. That, and what do modern meds do? Numb you from your emotions of body talk, from your subconscious to your conscious. And eventually, because of modern med approach, we numb you to ever get to your subconscious mind or to the depths of your emotion, and you never get better. You just glued, and every so often the power of your emotions and your thoughts will break you through whatever glue that we have to glue you harder to. That's how strong the emotional mind is. So and that's what I wanted yeah. to ask you is, you know, when you are on an SSRI or a serotonin reuptake inhibitor or any antidepressant, there seems to be, it's, it, emotions are, it seems linear. We've got on one side um, deep sadness and depression, on the other side we've got manic happiness or even just feeling really good about yourself. And it seems to me that these substances keep you in a narrow range. So you never feel miserable, but you never feel that happy either. Correct. It You're keeps so you correct. in this it's a numbing. holding pattern. It's a numbing. Mm. Yes, it's a numbing, gluing pattern. And if you understand the different meds, they have different ways of doing it. The antidepressants from the outward numbing experience, you don't even feel the anxiety that you may still be creating in a physical sensation anymore because of the effects of serotonin numbing your feet. Yes, you will still feel a bit settled, unsettled in the background. But what the different agents don't do adequately is contain rumination, except maybe an antipsychotic and anticonvulsant approach, which then you're slowing down the limbic area. So you may be numbing, but people break through the numbing because the background mind is still spinning and you eventually will break through again and again. Yes. So if you don't quieten down the ruminator, which is teach it a structure, notice what CBT and DBT is trying to coordinate that part and teach emotions to the younger, the, the EQ mind that hasn't nurtured the, the DBT approach. But logically, you, it's all a numbing process. You're not teaching much otherwise. And the person doesn't know how to learn an emotion, how to appreciate their emotion and live with their emotion. They feel emotions are bad in that process. Yes, Sometimes read all emotions to be the same on a negative profile. When I'm anxious, I vibrate. When I'm angry, I vibrate. When I'm irritated, I vibrate. So, but it's all one emotion. I'm angry or I'm anxious. But it could be boredom. It could be excitement. It could be anticipation. But they say, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. And of course, if you tell yourself I'm anxious because you don't know how to differentiate. And, you believe and, it. And verbal, you start, your body believes that that's what it is. I'm anxious. There's stress on my plate. There's, and you've mm -hmm. said it yourself, reaffirmed it. You start again. Narrate every time you say something. You know, people who, are, who have negative in their mind talk pessimistic. They complain. When they complain, they just reinforce what they were negative about to the environment. But they reinforce it to their hearing to themselves again, and they reinforce their whole experience more and more. So this is just a muscle memory reinforced habit of behavior. If you have to break down the psychiatry and psychology jargon and take that away, see the brain as a manipulative structure that just falls into habit of behavior like the rest of your body, muscle memory into what you do with your hands, driving, riding a bike. You can close your eyes and ride a bike, drive your car, you can walk, talk, eat these days without thinking about changing your gear. And the same thing, unfortunately, comes to going into stupid thinking patterns. You don't realize it's a stupid thinking pattern, but you, you go there because what you did for so many times in your mind, you just go there and assume it's right to go and think this logic. But just because your mind doesn't mean your mind is gospel. I'm so sorry. Our mind lies. Our oh, mind lies all the time. And, you know, in contrast, you know, when you talk, when you spoke about the psilocybin experience or the MDMA experience, is that instead of numbing and shortening that experiential timeline or curve, it's opening it up and throwing you into it so you can feel it fully and make peace with what you're feeling. And that so heals, doesn't stop you from, from growing. 
Of course. And, and so the psilocybin, psilocybin experience also, if you just have to put it another way, and that's why I say it's a preparatory state that has come, it's a catalyst of note. It'll catalyze in a period of four to six hours an experience of four years of therapy, daily or weekly therapy, regular therapy, growth that's therapy in, in, in four to six hours. And you don't come back to those. If you do a structured, uh, a healthy model going forward in front of that, you should not fall back into old behaviors. That that's yes. where the studies across the broad have shown that if you just do the psychedelic treatment, people within three to six months fall back into states of mind or behaviors of state and behaviors otherwise. So you have to combine then that's the new models, a holistic routine of, of self-care, self-respect every day for at least three to six months in front of a model also of a deep release of psychedelic from behind, a combined yes. approach. Yes. You need to teach new and unpack all as best you can at the same time. The more you've got one going and entrenching as, as while you're doing the other, the, it happens quicker. Yes. And, and that's where the coaching model and the, the nurturing journey model that this mm -hmm. is not you're going to come back to talk about your past each time. Now we talk about the fun in front of you. How's your hobbies going? How's your interest? What you did this weekend? It's positive psychology. You're talking to a normal therapeutic hardcore unpacking trauma. Of course, the model works differently to hardcore traumas and, and those states of mind when there's true physical, emotional and witness of PTSD. You go deeper and deeper in the way you prep a patient. But it's still the, how the physiology works through the psychedelic is releasing, rewiring, and, and of course, ego states, safe states that you're going into this repressed state memories to go there to process without hurting the ego in front. So no, when we achieve what they call ego dissolution, the so-called buzzword of this whole psychedelic frontier, it's supposedly where you really fractured all the old beliefs and you reconstruct on the other side in a truer sense of authentic self, leading to better self-actualization. And, you know, there couldn't be a, me a better metaphor for what we're needing in the world right now is to break the past and to move forward into a, a new future, a new, based on a different understanding of, of, of how we do things in the world. So, yeah, if anything, the time is now for, for these kinds of therapies to really um, come to the fore to, to um, it's the time. I mean, I think a lot of us can agree with that at the moment. So if anybody, I'm going to obviously put all of your contact details and your website address on the show notes, but are there any books that people who are listening to this episode can, can read or any resources where you can go and find out more aside from your own, um, so, so, you know, so your yes, own website? Uh, they go to John Hopkins University official website for a study for psychedelics and consciousness the, that's the Department of Studies for Psychedelics and Consciousness, Imperial College of Medicine, okay. uh, an organization called the Beckley Foundation, Berkeley Foundation, BEC, uh -huh. Beckley Foundation. Uh, Matt mm -hmm. Fielding is the, the, the uh, philanthropist and owner of this body and uh, who's been funding psychedelic research. All clinical trial data is available on these official sites from all of these organizations. Okay. So official published trial data is because let's be fair, trials are slow and few and far between because no one's funding it and big pharma funds their own trials. Mm -hmm. No one's funding these trials. It's all coming from donors and private sponsors along the way. I'd like to make another point. Uh, three years ago, four years ago, FDA released a statement that they have a synthetic psilocybin, which has been fast-tracked in phase three clinical trials for human consumption for treatment-resistant depression and anxiety and, and things like that. That's three years ago. Uh, earlier this year, they mentioned a new dementia medication that's going to be fast-tracked. It'll be ready by the end of this year. 
And these are all um, based But I'm in... trying to say, look at the timeline. Look at the timeline. The psychedelic is three years and it still hasn't hit the fast yes. tracking. The dementia drug is going to be on fast track in six months. That comes from a pharmaceutical house. The other comes from an open air. Yes. See what's going on. Pharmaceutical companies are out there to make money and that's fine. Um, but at the same time, people need, we need to look out for our best interests as individuals and make up our own minds as well. So it's really important that we can have these discussions and realize that there's more, there's so much more out there. And it's all, it all starts with you. It's your brain, your responsibility, your, it's, it's all you. And I think when we can really come to terms with that, the sky's the limit. It is only but truly an outcome capable for everyone out there. Only a means of consistent effort would get someone to get this outcome. It's just consistent effort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's unfortunately what's, what's lacking is that we, we've got to do the work. And this is everything in life. We've got to do the work and be consistent. So Dr. Mula, thank you so much for your time. This was a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Um, and yes, I can't wait to to get it out there and get the message out. And I'm hoping that more people will come and chat to you and find out how they can feel better um, going down a different route. Thank you, Nikki, for this invite. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you once again for joining me for another episode of the Reinvent Health Podcast. As usual, all of my guests' details can be found in the show notes page on Apple Podcast, Anchor, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate on Apple and leave a review.